This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. podcast. This is your host, Darren Hood. Thanks everyone for taking the time to join me on today. And as always, a very special welcome to those of you that are listening for the very first time. And I'm going to interject this here and I'm going to keep saying it. Folks, it's time for truth to go viral. Uh, That's something that does not happen in our in our culture no matter where you are in the world truth doesn't tend to go viral and when it comes to user experience a place where there was practically zero misinformation prior to 2011 uh, it is all over the place today and people who are coming into ux don't have a filter don't know what and what not to accept in many cases what and what not to reject and don't know really and don't have the skill or the knowledge in order to vet certain things out have a tendency to accept everything it's time for truth to go viral let let's let's help truth whether it's me or anybody else let's fight to let truth get in front of people so that people can be in a better position to be successful and not have to unlearn things. It is very challenging and problematic to unlearn things. And it's very embarrassing. Frankly, when, when people have done something or embrace something that is not accurate or not in their best interest, and then they have to double back, it's not a good feeling. It's not good for us to have to do that. So let's try to make things simpler. If you know the truth, help other folks to to come into contact with the truth as well. So I just want to throw that out there on today. We're continuing with our Q&A. I mentioned last week, thanks again to all of you who contributed and provided some questions about the topic at hand where we're talking about finding jobs, we're talking about hiring, we're talking about team management, we're talking about cultivating teams, we're talking about how to handle things associated with the work. The, the, some of the questions actually brought uh, got into that arena as well. So we welcome all of these questions. We're very grateful, very happy about the support that we got on these. And we'll do these another time. Matter of fact, I'm thinking about starting to do that and add those Q&As to the YouTube channel as well. So we want to do some things there. But let's pick up where we left off. I, I received a total of nine questions and topics. And so we're going to do number four, five, and six on today. We're going to leave these in very digestible chunks instead of having one extremely elongated episode this time. Let's just break them up. So let's go ahead and dive in, shall we? Let's dive in and pick up on question number four. And this person writing said, what's the best way to help a client who's not imaginative and happens to be very literal when it comes to understanding the bigger picture when we're trying to present concepts and or prototypes that contain placeholder data, placeholder text, placeholder visualizations. It may not visually reflect an exact scenario that someone would experience in the real world, but it does display all the elements and the functionality that will allow for that scenario to to be represented once it's actually operational. 
And, and, and this is a fantastic question. It is something that comes up a lot. Something that people who are new to the discipline would never expect. Uh, it, it's really challenging. You're trying to cultivate yourself. You're trying to grow yourself. You're trying to do the job. You're trying to be the best you can be. And then you have this complicating factor that comes up. And, and there's this is really a big question because there's a lot of moving pieces associated with it. So I'm going to cover it from a very high-level perspective and try to touch on as much as I can because a lot of things come to mind when I look at this. The first thing that comes to mind with this question, on top of what I already mentioned, you're trying to do your best. You're trying to represent for the users. You're trying to advocate for the users. You're trying to represent the business. You're trying to look out for your stakeholders, for your clients. And, and, and all these things are fine, well, and good, and we should do these things, but it becomes complicated when you're trying to do it. And please don't take your eyes off the prize. Keep focusing on the things that you're doing, but there's something you need to add to your expectations, something you need to add to how you're processing information, something you need to add to how you're trying to accomplish all these things when you have clients, stakeholders, or you're working at a company where the UX maturity level is on the lower side of the spectrum. When the UX maturity level is on the lower side of the spectrum, and I, this should also be noted, you could be at a company where the UX maturity level is higher and still have stakeholders and clients that you're, that you're managing, that you're interacting with, that you're collaborating with, where their maturity level is lower. So we always have to be ready when you have people who don't know how to understand the things that we present, when you're presenting in the best way you can. They still may not understand what you're trying to represent, or sometimes you can do a fantastic job representing the experience but people, some people want to get into the weeds when getting in the, into the weeds is not the best thing. That's what's going to happen when the UX maturity level is lower. We don't need to understand every millimeter of an experience in order to understand the experience. But when it comes to clients and stakeholders, they don't know that. And they are trying to look at every millimeter of an experience. And so Somebody is trying for you, they want you to represent something that is actually counterproductive, cost prohibitive, time prohibitive <laughs> to actually represent. And in the case when the customers are not very imaginative, I want to pause there for a moment too. The customer shouldn't have to use their imagination. Matter of fact, the UX professional is, I like to refer to this as herding cats. One of the things that herding cats is representative of you're, you're hurting cats in this situation because you're the customer should never have to use their imagination and you don't want them to use their imagination because the chances of them imagining things the right way is slim to none which is why when we're doing our portfolios as i jump to another part of what i'm trying to address here when we're doing i'd say portfolios in that when we're doing our our uh our prototypes we want to make sure that we try to understand who you're addressing from a client and a stakeholder perspective. Your, what you produce 
because they're going to be the first ones to see it. What you produce needs to address them first. So try to understand how that person is wired. Try to understand what their personal UX maturity level is. I, I have a habit over the course of my career. I have I grew to start to practice assigning not only a UX maturity level to the organization as a whole, but I assign them by project, I assign them by stakeholder, by client, so that when I am dealing with these people, I need to make sure that I factor what I'm producing, factor their maturity level into what the work that I'm doing. So that way I'm accounting for it. In order to thrive and what we do, we need to anticipate, we need to answer questions before they are presented. If you know that a certain person has a tendency to ask certain questions or to look for certain things, do your absolute best to account for those things in the work that you do. Now, for example, in this case, somebody is not very imaginative. They shouldn't have to use their imagination anyway, so I want to throw that out. Never expect a customer to have a big imagination. But if you know that they're going to be very picky, if you know that they're going to worry about the weeds, it's not that you have to account for the weeds in your representation, in your work, but you do have to have something there that will at least allow you to speak to it. For example, and one of the things that came in with this question is, say there's a progress bar. Did you know that you can actually create an animated asset that in the prototype, when a person clicks, I've done this in my career, when a person clicks on something, you can set it up so that the progress bar literally progresses. There are actually assets out there that will allow you to do this. So if a person needs to see the progress bar doing something, if they're not going to rest, unless they see that progress bar actually progressing, then do what you can, simplify it so you're not spending too much time on it. You're not spending too much money on it. You're not, you're not, but remember, remember, we're not order takers. So you don't want to get into the weeds with that. But if you find out what, take a shot, what's the best representation of this progress bar that I can include? And if there are other things happening, then maybe I need to build an even broader illustration, a broader animation. I, I've heard of some UX professionals that go as far as creating visuals in something like Adobe After Effects and then including that in the prototype so that they get a real-world representation. And remember, it's always more cost and time effective for the UX person to build something like that and put it in a prototype than it is for the developers to do it. That's really a waste of their time, a waste of their money. UX is a huge time saver and a huge money saver, a huge productivity saver. We, through our prototypes, should be able to minimize other human resources factors from having to get involved and do things because they're just going to throw it away later. So look at something like, like a uh, uh, After Effects. There was a, an app that I used when Flash was a thing. I used to build animations in Flash and then put them in a prototype and then people would be able to see certain behaviors and then I tried to align other aspects of the experience that would take place along a progress bar, again, for example, 
I would go and do all of these things to try to make sure that this thing looks as close to real world as possible. And the main part of that in my mind was I don't want my clients and stakeholders to use their imagination. If they use their imagination, it's going to be off. It's just going to raise a bunch of additional questions. It's going to waste the team's time. And so we just have to come up with a way. It's time for you, the UX person, to get creative. It's time for you, the UX person, to make sure you're putting forth the appropriate effort to know your clients and stakeholders. Because remember, from a UX perspective, not only are they the clients of the overall project, but they're your users in that moment. And isn't it weird that a lot of UX people fail to realize that the things we deliver have to have a good UX? The deliverables that we produce must have a sound UX. They should not generate a bunch of questions. They should answer questions before they are presented. We should be able to, to address the imaginations so that the people don't have to use their imaginations. Let's work to eliminate imagination. So when this happens, when we do these types of things, when we take the onus upon ourselves to make these experiences highly representative of what we're trying to achieve in the long run, we're going to put ourselves in a position where now those, as this person stated, those folks who lack imagination, those folks who don't have the, the ability to see in between the cracks, so to speak, based on the way we deliver our work, based on the way we structure our deliverables, they don't have to do that. So let's try to strive and make sure that we're doing that. And when we do it now, and, and especially again, let me repeat this part, when we, when we don't expect folks to have to use their imagination and we eliminate it, now we're acing our job better. We're doing a better job at doing what UX people are supposed to do instead of just producing things, which is what a lot of folks, especially the, 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 tool, uh, the, the tool crowd, the tool cult, if you will, in the cult of UX, people are more tool-centric. And, and, and people are so busy working in tools that they don't realize that they're not even doing UX work at all. So let's make sure that we're focused on the UX, provide a good user experience for our clients and stakeholders, a good user experience for our end users, a good user experience for the business. That's our job, folks. So let's focus on that today. Question number two. As a junior UXer, I'd love to learn more about growing my experience and expertise in my career. How do we make sure we're growing in the right direction and not just falling into trends and hypes? This is a great question. And, and I go as far to say that the mere fact that you are thinking about it actually puts you far ahead of a lot of other folks today because a lot of folks, they just, they want the UX job. A lot of people want the job and don't want to do the work. A lot of people want the job and feel that they've arrived once they got the first job. And this couldn't be further from the truth. So each one of us, I've been doing it for 27 years. Guess what? I still have to cultivate my trajectory. I still have to grow. I still have things that I have to learn. I still have to get better at things that I already feel that I'm pretty good at. So there always has to be this awareness of what we can do to grow 
when it comes to our experience, when it comes to our expertise, how do we further our career? And I, I've addressed this before, so I'm going to bring this up again, but I frequently talk about what I call the UX cycle of excellence. And with the UX cycle of excellence, what that basically is, it basically is addressing what this person is asking. How do we manage our career? Because when you manage your career, you're addressing everything that the person was talking about. When we manage our career, we are talking about our experience and growing it. We are talking about building our expertise. And when we focus on these things, then actually the experience is going to fall in place a different way. But how about we just go through the UX cycle of excellence step by step here. We'll revisit this and help people to understand how this works. In the UX cycle of excellence, step number one, you have to properly define the discipline. It's really interesting that people are trying to further their UX careers and don't really know what UX is yet. It's like being on a boat. You have a rudder to steer the boat. Sometimes you have to drop anchor. You have to be aware of what's going on with the weather. There, there's navigation. And, and we have to navigate our UX career as well. Some people are not doing UX. I mentioned this again uh, earlier. So here we go again. I mentioned it last week. I mentioned it pretty often, actually. When you're trying to navigate and you're in the wrong ocean, that's going to become problematic. And there are people that are growing, but they're growing. I mean, weeds grow and flowers grow. Which one are you today? So you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing, that you're growing the right way. And, and until you really understand that UX is about a, a group of methods, methodologies, techniques, and deliverables, all of which they're used to find the sweet spot between business needs, user needs, and operating within the constraints. You have to identify the constraints on every project. They vary, and they're not just technological, as people said so uh, uh, some time ago. So we use all of these different things. It's not just one thing. I mean, you've got people today that are say that they want to transition into research, uh, many of them coming in from academia. That's one of the popular things of the day. Many people just say, hey, I like research. So I want to go into UX research. And they don't realize a lot of them don't know what UX is yet. A lot of them haven't properly defined the discipline yet. A lot of them don't realize that the more you know about UX, the better of a UX researcher you're going to be. And the less you know about UX, that's going to limit your ability to be a good UX researcher. So defining the discipline, no matter where you are or where you're trying to go in the discipline, is critical. Define the discipline properly. And somebody would say, well, Darren, will you define the discipline? Well, I just did. <laughs> UX is a group of methods, methodologies, techniques, and deliverables, all of which come together to help optimize the user experience, to find the sweet spot between the user needs, the business needs, and any constraints that might be at hand. So think of UX as a toolbox. UX is not one thing, folks. It's not one thing. It's a toolbox. It might be heuristics and usability. You've got to have a solid grasp there. You've got to understand information architecture. And the, the product of information architecture is findability. And findability is at the core of every experience that we design. Yeah, I said it. 
We designed the experience. And you are. Whether No matter what people say, that's a silly conversation that people have when they talk about that. What you're designing is going to result in an experience. So, so case in point, you're designing an experience. No matter what it might be, whether it's a good experience or a bad experience, you're still designing an experience. There's going to be an experience and somebody designed it. So you need to make sure that you understand UX research. Even if you're not a researcher, you still need to understand research. And there's a ton of different methods and methodologies, up to 125, according to the folks who wrote the Universal Methods book. <laughs> so you, you think it's just two or three things? You think it's just formative or summative? You think it's just qualitative or quantitative? You think it's mixed methods? You think mixed methods is new? It's not. There's a lot that's going on. And then even beyond those three pillars, there's still interaction and interface design. And interaction design has its own set of principles. And if you design UI and you don't know anything about interaction principles, interaction design principles, your UI is going to lack. So th there's properly defining a discipline is inclusive of being aware of all of these things, which happen to be step two in the cycle of excellence, embrace UX's foundational tenets. I just mentioned them, heuristics and usability, information architecture, UX research, and interaction and interface design. You've got to embrace those. A lot of people are coming into UX and they're doing everything else except for those things. Not good. Not good. Design thinking is not a foundational tenet. <laughs> no matter what it is. And, and design thinking is all over the place. You don't even know what you're getting when it comes to design thinking, but that's not a foundational tenet. The pillars of UX are those things that I mentioned. Embrace those and then branch out and learn all the other things. And there's subsets associated with each one of those pillars. So make sure that you embrace all of those things. And then that's how you, you put yourself in a position where you have a strong foundation in UX. You put yourself in the position that you, you have trajectory. You know where you're headed. Now you can navigate. Now you have a rudder. Now you understand, once you understand not only the pillars, but the things associated with each of those pillars, and you continue to evaluate, now you understand the direction that you're headed. So now you're, now you're, you're, you're not just growing. You're not just a weed now. Now you are a flower. And, and you'll continue to grow. And you're, let, let's say you're a perennial, so you're going to keep popping up all the time and you're going to need to be nurtured and you're going to need to, you're going to need your sunlight. You're going to need all the things you need to help you grow. So you continue to hear sound wisdom and understanding information associated with each of those foundational tenets. That's how we grow, folks. That's how we grow. You continue, step three says that you continue to evaluate your current state. Step four, you always make sure that you are maintaining a strong awareness of identifying your knowledge and skill gaps. Where can you grow? What do you need to know? What will make you better in your current organization? What will make you better in general, a better UXer? Identify where your knowledge and skill gaps are. I need to get better here. I need to know more about information architecture. I need to know more about semiotics. I need to know more about heuristics and usability. Interestingly, a lot of people today, when they see their knowledge and skill gaps, instead of saying, wow, okay, I need to grow in that area, they literally get angry with the people who let them know that they need to grow, which basically, they're basically stunting their growth. They're not going to achieve it now. And, and those people, they still get UX jobs, they're just not going to be able to excel at the work. So please know and understand that. 
Step five has to do with being being in a mindset of building towards excellence that, okay, I've identified these things, I've defined these things. Now I really, really, truly want to be good at what I do. I want to excel at what I do. A lot of people just want the job. A lot of people just want to have the UX title. But building toward excellence is a completely different animal, so you want to make sure that you do that. Step six, you want to commit to personal maintenance. So that means that you are iterating on you. You're always taking a look at all the previous steps and always making it a point because you don't just arrive. Matter of fact, we never arrive. So when you get to a certain point, you reach a certain state of maturity, you just want to keep on cycling through that and you want to keep on making sure, checking on yourself and making sure, prune yourself using the flower metaphor again. Think of yourself as a rose bush. That needs to be pruned. You don't just leave it. You don't just water it. It needs it needs to be maintained. And then lastly, you need to make sure that you're being patient with you. A lot of people want to grow too fast. A lot of people want too much for them from themselves too fast. You have to be patient. You're not going to achieve expertise overnight. I've seen people that say you can learn everything. The boot camp say it. You can learn everything you need to learn in six to nine months. Not true. Uh, some people say, uh, I actually had somebody tell me once, I, I got a pretty solid handle on UX. I've been studying it for two years. I just laughed when the person told me that. No, you don't. And, and if you think you do, that's the area, the, the area that you think you have a solid grasp on, that's the one that you need to go back and revisit because when you do, you're going to find out that there's several areas, several things that you really don't know about that. That's why I love revisiting books. If you, Some of you know about all the book recommendation lists that I publish out on Medium. Do you know that it's important to go back and read a book after you've read it? Revisit. Sometimes you don't have to read the whole book. Just revisit, cherry pick it. Go back and revisit certain parts of the book, which is why I like, personally, I like having electronic uh, a library instead of just the, the, some people love having the hard copy of the book. That's you, great. That's fine. That's you. I am of the school of thought that it makes me more efficient to have Kindle copies of the books or iBooks copies of the books or just PDFs of the books because I can search faster, I can make notes, I can revisit things. There are things that when you look at a book today and you digest concepts in a book today, when you go back and look at that book, you're gonna grow. And when you go back and look at that same book after you've grown, you will find that you digest various thoughts that are presented in the book differently. You see them at a different scale than you did when you were less mature in the field. So, so you're going to have to go back through these things again. And, and so that's part of maintenance. And that's why you have to be patient with yourself. You are not becoming a UX superstar overnight. <laughs> that's not, it's simply not going to happen. And, and I would say, don't even think of yourself as ever being there, even though some people might refer to you as that. I, it's not really good, good to think of yourself in that light, just throwing that out there, but be patient with yourself because we never stop growing. And when you find, you ever come across something where you find out you did something wrong or you had a concept that you embraced and you found out that a concept you embraced was wrong, don't be too hard on yourself. Be happy that you found out. Renounce that thing. Let it go. 
and then move on and be happy that you found out because there are some people that have embraced false concept in UX for years and they just won't let it go. No matter what, they're, they're too proud to say that they made a mistake. We all make mistakes. It, it, it's going to happen. You're going to embrace something that wasn't, that wasn't appropriate. You're going to think about an approach. One of the, one of the most common things that people do <laughs> that people embrace is they put too much, too much focus on a process. Some people will say, yeah, I, well, I really, I, I got my, my certifications from Nielsen Norman Group. There's a big giant so what waiting behind that. It, it, it doesn't really mean anything other than the fact that you got a sense of accomplishment. The, everything that you learned at Nielsen Norman, I guarantee you, if you go and study it, go and look in some books and study after that, you're going to find some stuff that wasn't covered. It doesn't mean that the information that was presented to you was incorrect. It doesn't mean that somebody was wrong with what they taught you. It doesn't mean that it was that that it was short-sighted. It just means that there's a lot more to learn. There's a lot more to do, and we need to be of the frame of mind where we're embracing that today. Uh, some people will say, oh, I was really big. I know all the Luma processes. There's a big, gigantic so what behind that. For those of you who've never heard my talk entitled Design Processes or Overrated, I highly recommend, not because it's my talk, it's because people are so sold on certain processes and they feel like that process is the only way when truth be told, no matter what process a person takes, at the end of the day, we all end up at the same thing, at a delivered product. And if you like a particular process, fine, that's fine, go ahead and do it. But you shouldn't put down someone else. And a lot of people today, and this was, was stressed at the end of that talk, a lot of people, when they're trying to hire, they will, will choose not to move forward with a particular subject because that person is not well-versed in a process. Processes are overrated. Folks, they're, they're overrated. Don't do that to anybody else and don't do it to yourself. There is no single process in any design format in any design world that makes others obsolete and of no value. Not one, not one. Uh, matter of fact, in that talk, I put all, well, several key processes side by side and show you how they're actually all pretty much the same with very slight variations, all using just different terminology. So let's not bank on, on processes. That, that is probably one of the worst things that's happening in UX today that people are, are, are putting all their eggs in a basket with a process and, and it's completely misguided and unfair. And it's frankly, it's also quite arrogant. <laughs> so let, let, let's not go there. So, so that's, that's how you manage your, your expertise. You grow your expertise, how you grow your career. That's how you make sure you're going in the right direction. Experience is something. The more you work, your experience is going to grow. Uh, there are some things you can do to, to grow an experience on your own. You could actually just take a website and do a heuristic evaluation of it, which is great for some people because a lot of people don't have the, the skill and knowledge when it comes to heuristics and every project should begin with heuristics because heuristics has a formative and a summative aspect to it. So when you embrace that, that's something that will help you. And a lot of people today, 
They don't know anything about heuristics. They don't have a strong personal heuristic repository. And as a result, their work suffers, their team suffers, the representation of UX suffers. So these are things that you can do to help grow yourself. And again, experience sort of takes care of itself. But yeah, you can do some things to deliberately build your experience. I'm actually looking to do, have some workshops to do some things like that in the not too distant future. So be on the lookout for that. Question number six, and where we wrap up today with today's set of questions, a person wanted me to address remote jobs versus in-house UX jobs. What, what is the difference between the two of these? What could we look out for with regard to the two of these? And, and this one I'm gonna say is relatively simple in that there's gonna be some varying schools of thought on it. So again, this is not all inclusive. Somebody else, if I was doing a panel show, somebody would think of something that I'm not gonna think of or present here. And I'm presenting this from as a, the mindset of a person who's been doing the work for 27 years. I don't see any of the work is different at all. Um, when you're working remote, the, the major difference between the two is that you don't have that face-to-face. You don't have that ad hoc meeting that takes place. It can take place. The more, the more creative you are, you can, you can simulate that water cooler scenario just by reaching out to somebody on Teams or Slack or whatever tools your team chooses to use. But for me, it, it's not, I gotta, I gotta answer this from my perspective, is that it's, I, I've been working remote off and on. I work remote now. I've been working remote off and on since 2011. Um, you would have thought initially, and this is when people don't have a lot of experience working remote, they tend to think that nothing can take the place of that face-to-face interaction. Um, Not only have I been working remote off and on since 2011, I have been engaging in extremely detailed and in-depth interactions with people remotely. So let let me qualify my statement about remote. I've been working remotely for my main employer since 2011 but I've been engaging with people and developing my remote interactive skills since 1995. So I learned how to read an email and gauge what the voice and the tone is without the person being there and go back to validate whether or not my my deductions are accurate. So when I see someone interact on Teams or Slack or via email, and I and I and I always make it a point. Here's something else a lot of people don't do. So I'm throwing this out there for you to to drop your jaw. And in some cases, I build personas with everybody I interact with. How's that for extra work that nobody knows about? So I understand. I lab, I work to understand. Everybody I interact with, I know their likes, their dislikes, their pain points, their goals, all those things that we normally put into a persona, I do it automatically when I come in contact with somebody. I don't necessarily document it, but I make sure to know who I'm working with. I make sure to know who I'm working for. I make sure to assign a a personal UX maturity level to that individual so that 
that helps me so that when I work remotely, because I work so hard to labor to understand those other individuals, is pretty close as if I was in-house with you. I mean, think about it. Remember work when you did, everything was in-house and nobody was working remote? Did you ever interact with a lot of people by way of telephone? We had email. We had telephones. Think about those situations and, and sort of encapsulate those experiences and think about how many of those went well, how many of those went sideways. And the ones that went well, think about it because when you look at it, we're doing the same exact thing today, a lot of us in these remote scenarios. In-house will take care of itself. When you're in-house with somebody, you're gonna see them face to face. But I would actually caution you, caution you to not put in-house on a pedestal because whether you're in-house or remote, you're still working with narcissists. You're still working with people who, as the first question uh, presented, they lack imagination or they don't know, they're too literal when it comes to certain things. You're still dealing with the same set of interpersonal dynamics that are the same reason why I stress the importance of, of excelling in emotional intelligence in order to further your UX career. The better you are, this is probably one of the reasons why it doesn't matter to me whether it's in person or remote, because I'm a huge subscriber to EQ. If you want to excel at UX, it's gonna your your ability to excel is gonna depend upon how well you 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 operate from an emotional intelligence perspective and how emotionally intelligent you are. The the higher your EQ is, the less somebody being in your face is gonna to matter to you. Because by that time, you it's, it's gotten down to the work. What are we trying to accomplish? What issues are we dealing with? What design problem are we, are we solving? Everything becomes a digital representation anyway. Everything becomes a figment. Not of the imagination, it just becomes a figment. It becomes a, a factor, this thing that, I mean, we throw things up on sticky boards. Well, guess what something is? Once you throw something up on a sticky board, it's virtual at that moment. That element, that factor, that thing that you're dealing with is now a virtual thing. It's no longer an organic thing that you're dealing with. And so when you really want to excel, <laughs> that's the point you're going to reach anyway. And then you begin to manage those things. You're not managing people anymore as much as you're managing concepts, as much as you're managing factors, elements, constructs frameworks. And so taking everything and putting it back into that, that sort of place of being, if you will, that's something that really helps us to optimize what we're doing. Uh, and when you look at things that way, it helps you keep from taking things personally because things get hot in UX. There's, there's a lot of, of weird interactions that take place no matter where you are. And so the remote UX job, it, it, it's the work, folks. We're doing the work, whether we're in-house or remote, and everybody's going to have their preference. Uh, I personally, I like remote. I, I I love not having a commute. I love the the being able to just dive into my work, even though I have to make myself get up and stop. The things I don't like, the cons of remote, is that if you sit all day, that's going to eventually catch up to you, folks. 
If you sit all day, you need to get up, get up from your desk, go for walks. If you don't have any exercise equipment, consider getting some. Uh, you're going to need to, to because uh, there's a health factor <laughs> that comes into play here. And so if you sit all day, and many of us know, uh, I love Patrick Lencioni wrote a book called Death by Meeting. The, that is, that's what he titled his book, but folks, going from meeting to 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 meeting, to meeting is death defying, literally. And depending upon what shape you're in, when you start doing that, it will catch up with you sooner or later. And I mean, sitting all day, it causes your hips to get weak. I've experienced that firsthand. Sitting all day, uh, it, it will cause you to, to, I mean, you're just sitting and you're moving your mouse around and now you, it, it, it's problematic, folks. So that that's the big risk of working remote. Um, when you're in-house, you, you've got to deal with, you know, you've got the face-to-face -face interactions, you've got, you got your commute you've got to deal with, now you're going to have more wear and tear on your, on your vehicles, or, or you've got to go and meet somebody if you're ride-sharing. You know, you've got all those different types of things you're going to deal with, but when it comes down to the work itself, there should be no difference, folks. There should be no difference. If you are working remote, um, Usually the company is going to send you a computer. They're not, you're not going to have to use your own computer to do that. You've got to make sure that you've got a sound internet connection. So you might have some challenges there. Every, all internet connections are not created equal. So you're going to have to, to work on that and get something that works for you uh, as well as works for your company. Uh, when you work remotely, you're going to have a higher light bill. <laughs> so be prepared for that. So, so these are the types of things that come up when, when it comes to working remotely that some people are not, are not thinking about. They're just like, oh, I don't have to drive. Great. Okay, you don't have to drive, but the money you were putting into your gas tank is going to go somewhere else. It's going to go in the furniture that you buy. It's going to go get a good chair. I can't stress that enough. <laughs> so get a good chair. I personally... The not sponsored, I love X chair, folks. I spent the money on an X chair. Go and look at it. Go do search on it. They got commercials now, especially if you're stateside. They've got commercials. X chair is a phenomenal product. Best chair I've ever had in my life. Get a headrest. If, you, if you've never had a headrest on your chair, if you're at a store one day, just sit in a chair that has a headrest and think about it and compare it to having a chair without a headrest. It does make all the difference in the world. You need lumbar support. See, we've gone from talking about UX to talking about health-related stuff. But if you want to do UX for a long time, you're going to need furniture that's going to support you. If, you, if you're if you a cheapskate <laughs> and if you're cutting corners and you don't get the best chair, your knees could suffer for it, your back could suffer for it, your butt could suffer for it, your neck could suffer for it, and you could end up with a huge chiropractor bill if you don't take care of yourself. So, Remote does bring a lot of other dynamics into play. And some of us wonder now after hearing me talk about that, you wonder why you had that phenomenal $1,000 chair at work because they're trying to make sure that you, you're going to be healthy. It's worth it to spend money on a good chair. So, but that's folks, those are the questions 
for today. That's about as in-depth as I can get in that because the, the work is the work. There's, it, there's nothing that really changes there. Uh, and, and if you are the person, you work remote, but you love those in-person interactions, schedule more one-on-ones with people. Drop in on somebody via via team. Set up random Zoom calls. Get some. Turn your camera on. Get some FaceTime with people. There are ways to make it better. If, if you're a person who thrives on, you're an extrovert and you thrive on being in front of people, you draw energy, thinking about it from a, a Myers-Briggs perspective, that, that, that extrovert introvert is about who you draw your energy from, not whether or not you like being around people. But if you draw a lot of energy from people, create the, the, the extroverted scenario so that you can make it more extrovert oriented. And so you, you can simulate it. You, you can do your best. Uh, but remote, there's a lot to be said for it, and it's not going away, folks. And forget about what Elon Musk said. Uh, make it, of course, he wants people to come into the office. He, he, he's a billionaire. You know, forget about it. There are other people who said it. Somebody else said, yeah, people need to, Malcolm Gladwell, people need to go into work. Yeah, these people who, who have millions of dollars, are they want you to go into work because their lifestyle is completely different. That's very unempathetic. It's very selfish. Uh, and it's very, it's very uh, uh, arrogant. So that, that's typical. It's what you expect. But for, for those of us down here with the, with the everyday Joe and everyday Sally, um, we, we, we thrive on it. We love it. And real workers, people who are really committed, maintain their productivity levels. Uh, matter of fact, we're actually more productive in, in the workplace, especially if you work in an open air environment because those people get sicker. <laughs> faster because the germs are flying everywhere in the office. So again, that's all I can share on uh, you uh, on remote versus in-house. So I hope that that does help. But folks, those are the three questions for today. Went a little longer than I expected, but we wanted to cover these three topics today as, as long as I could or as much as I could. And we hope you got a lot out of it. But that's all the time that we have for today, folks. It is time to sign off. So this is Darren Hood, the host of the World of UX. Until next time, happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.